Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. No one would have believed in the last years of the 19th century that this world was being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man's and yet as mortal as his own. That as men busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinised and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinise the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water with infinite complacency Men went to and fro over this globe, about their little affairs, serene in their assurance of their empire over matter. Yet across the gulf of space, minds that are to our minds as ours are to those of the beasts that perish, intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes, and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. <laughs> it's not Morgan Freeman, is it? I really enjoyed that. <laughs> you did, didn't you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> dun, dun, dun. yeah, yeah. All right. All we right. can't go further than that for copyright reasons. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the Curiously Specific Book Club, the podcast that's curiously specific about dates and locations in well-known books. Every episode, we take a book out for a walk into the wild to see whether the real world matches up with the world of fiction. My name's Lloyd Shepard. I'm a novelist and digital producer. My name's Tim Wright, and I'm a digital writer and a producer of immersive fictions. Immersive fictions. Mm. Talking of which, where are we immersing ourselves today? We are going to immerse ourselves in the town of Woking. Woking. In Surrey, to the southwest of London. Roughly 30 minutes commute. Between Woking and London. Importantly, that's why it's there, folks. We are roughly in the end of the 19th century, early 20th century. Ah, you want to be curiously specific about dates as well no, as locations. The curiously specific stuff is coming. I just want to be roughly now and give, give the listener a flavour of when and where. We're going to be in the year 1896. Oh, wow, you went straight there. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm curiously specific. <laughs> you really are. Surprisingly specific. That's in the, the publication date of the... Of the, of the novel Concerned, which is The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Yes, which I think, listener, you might think you know. 
because you watched a couple of films and maybe listened to a famous well, it's, radio it's, it's broadcast. It's embedded in the cultural memory, really, isn't it, by now? But you may not have read the book. True. And the book is outstanding, I think we both think, and both really enjoyed reading it repeatedly, in your case. Yeah, so we're going from Woking out in Surrey, and then we're going to start following the line of the, the Martians. Yes, because Woking, if you didn't know this, is where the Martians land first. The Martian cylinders. The Martians fire cylinders at Earth. They fire 10 of them. And we're going to follow the line of the cylinders and then the line of the Martians when they emerge uh, up the river. Um, well, first of all, up the River Way to yes. Weybridge, then up the River Thames to Richmond. And then we're going to end up in a place called Sheen. Yes, where the fifth cylinder lands. Where the fifth cylinder lands. And it's not entirely clear where Sheen is because I'm going to use Don't a word. spoil it. I'm going to use a bad word now, Tim. Sheen is quite liminal. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's quite liminal. Have you been working on other podcasts where uh, they uh, use words like that? Uh, yes, it's, uh, li- liminal's popular on quite a lot of I think of we should just get to Woking as fast as possible before you start using other weird words. Yeah. But very early in the morning, Port Ogilvy, who had seen the shooting star and who was persuaded that a meteorite lay somewhere on the common between Horsell, Ottershaw and Woking, rose early with the idea of finding it. Find it he did soon after dawn and not far from the sand pits. An enormous hole had been made by the impact of the projectile and the sand and gravel had been flung violently in every direction over the heath, forming heaps visible a mile and a half away. The heather was on fire eastward and a thin blue smoke rose against the dawn. The thing itself lay almost entirely buried in sand amidst the shattered splinters of a fir tree it had shivered to fragments in its descent. The uncovered part had the appearance of a huge cylinder, caked over and its outline softened by a thick, scaly, dun-coloured incrustation. It had a diameter of about 30 yards. 30 yards? 30 yards. That's a big old cylinder. So, where are we, Tim? Welcome to Horsell Common, very near Woking. We are sitting on the edge of a sand pit, facing east. It's a big old bowl, and uh, in the middle of it is a sort of pond or pool with a few trees in it. And banking down in it is a really big bank of very bright, yellowy-orange sand, like yep. a beach. So it's, it, when they say sand here, they mean it. It's really sandy. And I paced it out, and from where we're sitting on the sort of... Where are we? We're on the sort of western side of it. If you walk across the pit, I took about 120 paces. I think my pace is probably about a foot and a half. Right. So that's 60 yards. So half. So basically, the... The, the, this, the diameter of this basin, sandpit basin that we're in, is about 60 yards. So the diameter of the cylinder, the Martian cylinder, would take up half of this basin so it's probably worth emphasizing that is absolutely massive i was looking up sizes of spacecraft yeah just to get a sense of it and something like the space shuttle is yeah. about that size so it's like the space shuttle crash landed here yeah. and went just dived straight into horsel common near woking because <laughs> the martians were very keen on woking yeah why would they of all the cities and towns in the world why go after Woking? Why Woking? Yeah, yeah. So Horsell Common is, is, is just, just north of Woking? Between uh, Woking yes, and Chertsey? It is. Yeah, it is. It's a massive old common. So if you want to Quite come... Quite near the McLaren 
McLaren car centre is just north of here. So we yeah. are between Woking and the McLaren car centre. And the McLaren car centre has a really weird sort of cylindrical, it's very metallic round. It's very round, building that's sort of half buried into the ground. Right, yeah. I'm just saying. Just saying. And uh, is, this how they, is this how they got their advanced McLaren Formula 1 technology? McLaren cars is an anagram of Mars will kill you, isn't it? <laughs> well, no. No, 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 it's not. But I know, I know that it does have Mars in it. <laughs> McLaren cars. But, um, yeah, it would be interesting if they had some alien technology on their side. You can see why you were here. Your imagination would run right about the idea that, so, that this looks like a crater. So if you and s- you'd think, yeah. oh, something crashed here. So if he's sitting here at Wells, he's walked down from his house on Maybury Hill, yeah. which we'll go up to in a bit. He's walked down here and he's gone, oh, this would be a great place to crash land a Martian. Or it just looks like something did. It yeah. just looks like a giant crater. There's only one And it's prob- got lovely colours as well of the sandy yeah. yellows and then the green pines and the wa- these little pools of sort of browny, muddy water. It's very atmospheric. It's very lovely. That's very really nice and descriptive, that. Yeah. The only shame is... What? It didn't land here. Yes, it did. No, it didn't. Ian Wakeford who is the local historian in Woking. He's got a fantastic website at wokinghistory.org. Of course um, he found this. Of he's, he's, he just, uh, he's, just, he's got a whole set of um, PDFs describing each chapter of the first half, the Woking part of War of the Worlds, um, and where it all happened. He points out that this sandpit wasn't here in 1895, when Wells was researching the book. It was actually behind us. To the really? We- to the west of here. Really? Yep. So you know where it is. I know where it is. So you didn't tell me. No, I just enjoyed watching. But you know, it would have looked like this, but it would have been a mu- the sandpit would have been a much smaller. Yeah. So maybe only thirty yards wide, um, and it would have been a little bit further to the west than the one that's currently here. Oh. So sorry to uh, bust a bubble. Let's go and look at it then. If it's is it just behind us basically? It's just behind. It's us, basically yeah. right behind me, isn't it? It's just right behind you. I was enjoying watching you. Uh, wax lyrical about the uh... well I got you know what I got carried away with the romance of fiction yeah and then you and your new mate Ian yeah yeah came in with your curiously specific location yeah yeah and took all the romance out of it well you were the one giving me a hard time about curiously specific about dates I just think we should be specific about the locations fair enough fair enough (laughs) So, Tim, we've been to Horsell Common uh, and we've seen where the cylinder didn't land. Yeah, very clever. And where it did land. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, don't thank me. Thank Ian Wakeford, local historian. Um, <laughs> your new best mate. Are you doing a podcast mate? with him, sir? I might, I might just have to... Uh, might just have I think to I'm getting the elbow here, right? I might, you might get the elbow. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the context for the writing of this book. So I've been reading Claire Tomlin's excellent biography of the young Wells. Excellent. It's packed with information. I um, haven't. Yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> Um, deep research and I looked on Wikipedia <laughs> um, and I was trying to sort of think of a way of summarising this because he's, he's got such a complicated life in his first 18, 20, 22 years H.G. Wells H.G. Wells so, so basically the, the things I discovered reading this book was for, you know he went from school to school he went from job to job he didn't have any money he was desperately unhappy he got very very ill he was uh, working as a school teacher on the Welsh borders when he was about 18, 19 and was in a rugby match and was basically tackled really badly and then started kind of bleeding internally. And, okay, I shouldn't laugh. And, and, no, no, he was, he was terribly, terribly ill, and they thought it was tuberculosis for a long time, 
If it turned out it wasn't tuberculosis, he's just, he he's just really bad at playing rugby. His lung. <laughs> he's just not very good at rugby. But for three or four years, he was terribly, terribly ill, and he kept having relapses where he just be there's a brilliant bit in his own autobiography when he talks about getting a coughing fit on the way down to Temple Tube Station. It's fantastic stuff. But he was very, very poorly. Um, the other thing it was he was obsessed with sex, just obsessed with getting it away, and um, you know very frustrated. And finally, he met he moved a crumpeteer, in, I think we call him crumpeteer, the uh, a leg over man. Um, but he um, he uh, moved in with his aunt when he was at school in South Kensington at the normal school, which is basically a teacher training college. And uh, his, his aunt had a, a, a very luscious young daughter called Isabel that he was obsessed with, and he basically spent about six years trying to bed her. Oh. I believe is the term, mm-hmm. and um, she refused to say unless she, unless he married her. So then they married in 1894, and finally he got to you know, uh, what, I don't know what to say, enjoy her, <laughs> but, it, but it turned out to be a disaster. She hated it. She hated the uh, the, the, the experience, the, the H.G. Wells experience, the H.G. Wells experience. <laughs> Unlike and, many um, other women, and he was terribly, terribly upset because he'd basically been waiting for years and years and years and been kind of faithful to her, and then spent the next sort of you know. 30 or 40 years, trying to get off with every, every woman he met. Um, he was apparently incredibly attractive to women, uh, according to Claire Tomlin. Basically, probably because he actually listened to them and talked to them. Well, well also, according to Claire Tomlin, he smelt of honey. Ooh. Is that and, good? Uh, apparently. Maybe I'll just start wearing my honey eau de parfum. Okay. Soon after he married Isabel, he met a woman called Amy Robbins, who was a student at the school he was teaching at at the time, which, oh. was, a, which was a kind of a, a correspondence school like the Open University in London. So she was a bit younger than him. And they started, you know, having an affair. I'm, I'm, Bonking, she, she as was, the son would have I'm called it in the little, 80s. It's a euphemism uh, minefield, this one. So they started uh, having an affair. And basically, Isabel find out, found out about it. He, he, he introduced Isabel to her. Bizarre behaviour. Quite a lot of this strange behaviour with Wells. And um, Isabel saw straight away that they were... Um, essentially an item, and told him to clear off. So uh, he moved into Woking. He was writing 7,000 words a day by this time. And, and still getting his leg over. And still getting his leg over. It must have been... Ap- and learning how to ride a bicycle. One of the things I'd want to say about that writing of doing 7,000 words and suddenly finding a market for his work is that this book wasn't published initially as a book. It was published as a serialised story in a magazine. This was published in Pearson's magazine, and it's a sort of gentleman's... Magazine, gentleman's <clears throat> magazine. Well, it's quite racy. If you go on, if you search for it on Google, there's various archives where you. I think British Library have some online, some pages from it. But the covers, you have to request special access. The covers are ding dong. In every episode, there's a lovely lady, but a modern lady, and she's she's riding a bicycle. She's going to the opera without her coat on and showing her cleavage. There was She's one hanging where... around in a sort of a peasant dress with flowers in her hair. There She's was... lying in a hammock. There was one, there was a suspicion of ankle in the one I looked at. It's very racy. It's a very modern, modern magazine. Yeah. And the layout is quite interesting about War of the Worlds in that, that it's illustrated uh, with quite dynamic sort of... Gra- uh, really great illustration. Yeah, it's more like a graphic novel yeah, in yeah. a funny kind of way yeah, yeah. Uh, than a than And the a text book. laid out in really interesting ways around yeah. the pictures. So if you search, I recommend listeners for you to search and look at that because yeah. you'll have a very different sense of the book than it just being dry text yeah, in, a, in a bound, bound yeah, yeah. novel. Pearson's magazine interests me. The guy who founded it, he made loads of money and he, he founded the Daily Express. Really? Yes, he did. Interesting. And the Pearson's publishing group grew and grew. I think they, they also had Good Housekeeping or something like Country Life. All these right. kind of magazines bloomed out of that. Um, and then later on, of course, he published Men Only. Oh, yes. Uh. 
So it sort of got. It, so I can think you've got to <laughs> the, think the archetypal gentleman's well, magazine. Given that, given that H.G. Wells is a massive pub- crumpeteer, it's not. I'm, I'm not very surprised that his work was serialised in a racy men's magazine. Oh yeah, but it's not a dirty mag. It's more like. Men only, or Pearsons? Pearsons. It's more like Esquire, I'd say. It's like you've got a very luscious sort of film star on the front, some literary guys publish a short story in it, and then there's loads of stuff about gadgets and science, you know, and cameras. What we would would call a lifestyle magazine. Yeah, which blokes, young men, would be reading on the train as they travelled in from Woking to London. Because you mentioned the Daily Express. The other thing that happened in 1896, Ah. Daily Mail was published for the first time. Oh, there we are. Yeah, so the tabloidization, the tabloidization of, of, of culture. Yeah. So War of the Worlds has got to be thought of in the in that context. Absolutely. There are other things happening around that time you want to yeah. talk about. Blackpool Pleasure Beach opened. Which well, is a big one are. for That's me. Quite racy as well. It's I a imagine. big one for me. Now the first speeding ticket was issued ah. to Walter Arnold of Kent. The limit at the time was two miles per hour. It was later <laughs> later raised to fourteen miles per hour. There was also the first casualty of a car accident. Oh, I think the first drunk driver was charged around then as well, the taxi driver. Right. There was also a, the first car factory in England opened in 1996, Thomas oh. Humber's car factory. And rather mournfully, the shortest war in history, this is relevant to the War of the Worlds, because he talks about the extermination of the Tasmanians, Tasmanian Aboriginals that were, really were virtually Yes, yeah, so out. if you think about it, that, it's a meta- that when, when he talks about the Martians looking at human yeah. beings like that he's yeah. the metaphor is that he thinks that the people of the Brit- the british and their yeah. with their empire look down on other people like that well not just look down on them also them. had killed them because the yeah. the shortest war in history mm. the anglo zanzibar war 45 minutes of the british basically shelling people to to bits and it was over in 45 minutes mm. so if you want a you know you can't Imagine that Wells wasn't thinking of that when he was thinking about the devastation of the heat ray in the uh, in, uh, in the world. Completely, I think Kitchener's going a bit mad in the Sudan at this period as well. Isn't yeah, it? yeah, um, with the well, Mahdi. It's the fourth Anglo-Ashanti War in uh, eighteen ninety-six, yeah. and then uh, one more. Uh, Thus spake Zarathustra was performed for the first time okay. on a science fiction theme. I'll, obviously... I'll give you five pounds if you can sing that instead of, and not do dun 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 well you can't really sing dun 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 that speaks out of takes quite a long time to I've just seen I've just seen a little old man go into H.G. Wells' house oh really? yeah it's weird that there's something else living there isn't it? So we're standing on Maybury Road. Oh, it's noisy here. In Woking, which runs down the side of the railway line, and it's very busy. This is where Wells came to live with Jane, his yet-to-be second wife. Ding dong. Ding dong. He was still married to his first wife. And they the rent- neighbours were chattering about that. They rented a house here in 1895. And during that time, he wrote War of the Worlds. He published... The Island Dr. Morrow, he sent the Invisible Man to his agent. Who, and, who couldn't see him. And he, <laughs> and, he, and he wrote Wheels of Chance, his comic novel about bicycling. A comic learned, novel about bicycling. They learned to cycle while they were living in Woking, and they bought themselves a tandem on which Jane sat on the front and Wells sat on the back. Ding dong. Can so he was earning face? tons of money. He was earning <laughs> tons of money. So by the end of 1895, when they'd been there about six months, he reckoned he was earning five to six hundred pounds a year from his writing. So he'd been completely impoverished for years, and suddenly it was starting to happen for him. So he but moved house. Here. So he moved house. 
So in fact, he was only here for what, less than a year? Less than a year. No, 18 months. 18 months. So this so, house. So we're standing on the road. What's it called? Is this Oriental it's called May- Road? Or? No, no, it's called Maybury Road. Maybury Road. And it looks north, south, looks south over the railway line up Maybury Hill, which is the hill that goes up from... It's a busy old Common. place, this, isn't it? So he's in, he's in a semi-detached... Smallish big, house. Smallish yeah. house. But it obviously this would have been... It's got a little bit of a garden. This would have been, and the railway's literally across the road. This probably wouldn't even have been paved in 1895. It probably just would have been a, a lane. It's still busy, though, because I think it would have been the rat run through to the train station. Yeah. There's buses go past here, taxis. Yeah. The train line is literally the other side of the road. So and probably, here comes a fire engine. You can probably I mean, hear it, cutting down the trees. It's everything very, very comes down this road. It's very, very busy. So he would have had trains puff puffing outside his house all the time. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's interesting thing he said about um, living... He, he used to write to a woman called Elizabeth Healy quite a lot. He wrote to quite a lot of women, it must be said. And he wrote to her about when he started work on uh, The War of the Worlds, and he said something quite funny about it. Um, he enjoyed placing their first arrival on Earth in a subsequent action not too far from the Woking house in which he and Jane were currently living, and mischievously told Elizabeth Healy how he had set out to completely wreck and destroy Woking. Killing my neighbours in painful and eccentric ways, then proceed via Kingston and Richmond to London, which I sack, selecting South Kensington for feats of peculiar atrocity. Now, if you're reading The War of the Worlds, which is narrated by somebody, you might think that this is where the narrator lives. You might think that. Because that would be a logical thing to do if you were writing Well, I was thinking about him sitting in this house. Yeah. So he's got the train line at the front. I think he would write at the back of the house. Yeah. And therefore he'd be looking straight over at Horsell Common. Yeah, but he wouldn't have been able to see Horsell Common because there was a gas works in the way. Oh, right. There was a gas works in the way in 1895. That must have been relatively new, the gas yes, works. Yes, it was relatively new. They only just put electricity into Woking in 1895. Right. So... Oh, so he would have seen... He would have seen strange, large metal objects with yeah. steam rising out of them and flames. Yes, exactly. My, my new friend Ian Wakeford thinks he knows where the narrator's house is. So I think we should go and find it. There's a man who's just come from next door. I'm, sorry, I'm so nosy. The, there's a builder next door who's, who's doing acts of destruction on the other part yeah. of the semi-detached property. Yeah. He's just come and got a kettle out from H.T. Wells' house. Oh, really? Yeah, he knocked on the door and... Uh, and got a kettle. Very good. <laughs> Breaking news. How interesting. <laughs> How interesting. I stood staring, not as yet realising that this was death leaping from man to man in that little distant crowd. All I felt was that it was something very strange, an almost noiseless and blinding flash of light, and a man fell headlong and lay still. And as the unseen shaft of heat passed over them, Pine trees burst into fire, and every dry furze bush became with one dull thud a mass of flames. And far away, towards Knapp Hill, I saw the flashes of trees and hedges and wooden buildings suddenly set alight. Very good. So the narrator makes his way... The heat ray. That's his first experience of the heat ray, and he makes his way home after that. He runs away. He runs away, up Maybury Hill. That's Friday when that happens, right? Yes, um, and then the Saturday's a really weird day when nothing much happens. And he's sitting in his house on the Saturday evening when it all kicks off, right? Yeah. Um, so the question is, where is his house? Yes, yeah, so we found H.G. Wells' house, but we're, you're saying that's not the narrator's house. Let me read the bit in the book where he sees, um, sees it all happening. Chapter 9, The Fighting Begins. 
About six in the evening, as I sat at tea with my wife in the summer house, talking vigorously about the battle that was lowering upon us, I heard a muffled de detonation from the common, and immediately after, a gust of firing. Close on the heels of that came a violent rattling crash, quite close to us, that shook the ground, and starting out upon the lawn, I saw the tops of the trees about the Oriental College burst into smoky red flame, and the tower of the little church beside it slide down into the ruin. The pinnacle of the mosque had vanished and the roof line of the college itself looked as if a hundred-ton gun had been at work upon it. One of our chimneys cracked as if a shot had hit it, flew, and a piece of it came clattering down the tiles and made a heap of broken red fragments upon the flower bed by my study window. Ah, okay. So he sees all that from his house. Okay, and that's the heat ray the, and the only way coming could, up from the... From, the, from Horsell Common, so which is just, just yep. north. We're about, what? Half a mile, three quarters of a mile, something like that, um, south of where the where the cylinder came down, yeah, on the top of Maybury Hill, looking he, above Woking, as it were. So he's looking back down towards Horsell Common. Yeah. Now you could only see the, all that he sees if you were if the the mosque and all that stuff was between you and the common. I get right? you. So that's not um, H. G. Wells' house. H. G. Wells' house is the other side of the mosque to here. Okay, so then we're looking for a house that has a summer house and a study, and, and a has study. a view quite near the top of Maybury Hill. We are also looking for a house, as um, my new friend Ian Wakeford has pointed out. Oh, will you? Ian. you and Ian, do you want to do the podcast with him? Yeah, is that I what do, this actually. is about? I do that. He's done, he's done a lot more work than you have. He's in a direct line of sight from the sand pits on Horsell Common. And look, he's even drawn you a line. And it takes you to the corner of Pembroke Road and Maybury Hill. That's where we are. And Ian reckons that the house is actually called uh, Pook's Hill, which is now like uh, being converted into apartments now. As in Pucker Pook's Hill? Pucker Pook's Hill, exactly. A Rudyard Kipling reference. And then, but there's another house opposite it called... Um, Clifton? Clifton. That is also, I think, equally valid. It would have a better view Cause it's on from the, the top floor. It's on the, it's on the Horsell Common side of Pembroke Road. It would have a better view. Um, so, I quite like Clifton, really. Well, what but I'm this liking... But it's definitely up here. What though, I'm right? liking is just a bit further down the road, is a, a platform built onto a pine tree. Like a viewing a platform oh, yeah. for, for seeing straight down for the valley. Martians. For seeing Martians. So what house is that where they built a, a, a viewing <laughs> platform? I don't know. Hey? You go look. You're listening to the Curiously Specific Book Club. If you want to hear this podcast without ads and get immediate access to new episodes, you should check out our Patreon feed. Go to patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search for Curiously Specific. You'll always get this podcast for free on this feed. But if you subscribe, not only will you get the show straight away, you'll also get access to all our videos and photos and maps and show notes and links that we generate for each show. People who've been listening to us for a little while will know that we generate a lot of additional information around these podcasts, so it's it's well worth checking out what you get on the Patreon page. So if you head to patreon.com, search for Curiously Specific, you'll see all our subscription offers on there. And thanks to everyone who's already supported. Absolutely. Now back to the podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. So now we know where Wells lived. We know where the narrator lived. We've tracked that down. Yeah. And we know how long it takes you to get from the, where the Martians landed back to his house. Yes. And that all makes sense. And also what you can see and can't see from Wells's house and from the narrator's house. Yes. And there's a there's a bit obviously a big clue to the narrator's house when he talks about the mosque. Yes. And, now you've done a bit of work on that, haven't you? Now the the mosque is very interesting. Is there so, an article? You've got a piece from the book, right? So from the book it says, "I saw the tops of the trees about the Oriental College burst into smoky red flame, and the tower of the little church beside it slides down into ruin. The pinnacle of the mosque had vanished." And the roof line of the college itself looked as if a hundred-ton gun had been at work upon it. The mosque and the Oriental Institute in Woking. Quite interesting. I was very struck by the fact that that there is a working mosque right in the middle of town there. And it's still there. And it's really old. So it's the Shah Jahan Mosque. It's the first purpose-built mosque in the UK, and it was built in 1889. It was inspired by and and funded and, and built by a chap called Gottlieb Wilhelm Leitner, who was a Hungarian British Orientalist. So he was somebody who was born in Hungary, became a naturalised Briton, um, became really interested in the, uh, in, the, in the East, as they would have said back then. And he built a place called the Oriental Institute in Woking, which was a centre of, of learning about the Eastern world, essentially the, what we would now think of as the, sort of the Middle East, you know, the, the Muslim world. And he, was a, he was an amazing linguist, did you know that? Yes, he was. And, you know, just incredibly interested in all those kinds of things. When he was 15, he went to the Crimean War as a, as a translator, as an yeah. interpreter yeah, yeah. for the British Army. Yeah. And they say that when he died, uh, he was fluent in 50 languages. Wow. Okay. I didn't even know there were 50 languages. No. 
well, there's probably 50 dialects in Norfolk, aren't there? So, so, so he was hoping it would be the academic centre for studies in, you know, into the East. But actually, the University of London opened the School of Oriental and African Studies in 1916, and that kind of took all the all the energy over there. So you're saying that, that Woking could have been like it could have been SOAS, the, the international SOAS. Um, centre for language study. Yeah. And, and but he died. He studies. died in 1899 and didn't really get to pursue it. And some people think that if he hadn't died, he may that may have happened. He would have pushed it through. But as part of that, he built the the mosque, and it was it, it's really interesting because it it became uh, a reason for when um, Pakistani people started moving to the UK, a lot of them went to Woking because it was the only place where there was a mosque. Oh. And if you go around Woking now, there are there there are and we we saw this in yes. Wales's house. You know that street yeah. where Wells lived. Most of the families down there seem you know were were of Pakistani origin. Yeah, the mosque is there. You can see it. You know, you go to the uh, there's like a retail park halfway up Maybury Hill. Well, handily for a man who liked bicycles, there's a Halfords there. There's a Halfords, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. So right <laughs> that would have been bikes. useful. So at um, the time, but it's worth saying that there is a there's a memorial garden in Horsell Common to Muslim soldiers who fell in the First and Second World Wars fighting for what was then the British Empire. The War of the Worlds. The, the, the actual the, War of the, the Worlds. The actual War of the Worlds. The six, I think there were 16 soldiers buried there after the First World War in this in this little square that's cut out of Horsell Common. But now it's been turned into a memorial garden. And one of the people who funded that memorial garden was Paul Weller. Of the Jam. Of the Jam, who filmed the video to Funeral Pyre on a Horsell Common. That's right, listener. Go on to YouTube and find Funeral Pyre by the Jam, and you'll see them standing in their mod coats on yeah. Horsell Common, pretty much where the marshes around landed. a fire. So it was quite War of the Worldsy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think he knew that that was where the Martians landed? Do you think Paul Weller knew that? Is he a big reader? I don't know. No, I don't, I know. don't know. He probably hasn't got time. His output. He's do, does His two output albums a year or something. Prodigious. I know. Amazing. And also, he does quite a lot of drinking. Allegedly, and that hair doesn't look after itself. <laughs> So we're standing on the corner of Perford Common Road and Old Woking Road, which is the other side of Maybury Hill from Woking itself, or New Woking. Um, quite a busy road. Which is on the edge well. of Perford Common. On the edge of Perford Common. And on the Saturday night, when they see the destruction of Horsell Common, him and his wife decide to head to Leatherhead. Yes, so they get cousins. A horse, they get a horse and cart from the manager of the Spotted Dog at the top of the hill. Oh, a pub. Is that right? A pub, yes. And, are we going to go to a pub? And we are going to go to a pub. And then they go to Leatherhead. Uh, and then he comes back to uh, Woking. But he doesn't come the way he went. But he, he doesn't come the way he went. He goes circular route, very, doesn't he? Very strange route through Ripley and Perford. Ripley and Perford. But then he has a bit of an encounter. Yes. Do you want to read that bit? Oh, yeah, please. Yeah. From Ripley until I came through Perford, I was in the Valley of the Way, and the red glare was hidden from me. As I ascended the little hill beyond Perford Church, the glare came into view again, and the trees about me shivered with the first intimation of the storm that was upon me. 
Then I heard midnight pealing out from Perford Church behind me, which is curious because Perford Church doesn't have a bell. It's a local joke though, isn't it? Okay. And then came the silhouette of Maybury Hill with its treetops and roofs black and sharp against the red. So we've got a pretty clear sense of where we are. And then he says, I felt a tug at the reins of the horse he was driving. I saw that the driving clouds had been pierced, as it were, by a thread of green fire suddenly lighting their confusion and falling into the field to my left it was the third falling star yeah saturday night midnight saturday night uh, and uh, it's perford common where the third cylinder lands so we have found where the third cylinder lands so it's 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 on a there's now a a housing kind of apartment block there called perford court yeah and and then just just uh, south of that is a farm called Stone Farm where yeah. there's a field. Yeah. So exactly. I think it's smashed into Stone Farm yeah. is what I think. Exactly. For those of you out there who are trying to find all the cylinders... Yeah, look for Stone Farm we found Perford we, we, Court. Yeah. But then he now, legs clo- it away from there. Well, he legs on it, yeah. With, on his, with his horse and cart. Going on the road back up towards Old Woking Road. So we've, yeah. done, we've got that. A moderate incline runs towards the foot of Maybury Hill and down this we clattered. So he's... he's clattering down Perford Common Road towards Old Woking Road. Mm -hmm. At first I regarded little but the road before me, and then abruptly my attention was arrested by something that was moving rapidly down the opposite slope of Maybury Hill. At first I took it for the wet roof of a house, but one flash following another showed it to be in swift, rolling movement. It was an elusive vision, a moment of bewildering darkness, and then... In a flash like daylight, the red masses of the orphanage near the crest of the hill, the green tops of the pine trees and this problematical object came out clear and sharp and bright. And this thing I saw. The first tripod. Yeah, a monstrous tripod, higher than many houses, striding over the young pine trees and smashing them aside in its career. A walking engine of glittering metal striding now across the heather, articulate ropes of steel dangling from it, and the clattering tumult of its passage mingling with the riot of the thunder. A flash, and it came out vividly, heeling over one way with two feet in the air to vanish and reappear almost instantly, as it seemed, with the next flash a hundred yards nearer. Can you imagine a milking stool tilted and bowled violently along the ground? That was the impression those instant flashes gave. But instead of a milking stool, imagine it had a great body of machinery on a tripod stand. (laughs) And then suddenly the trees and the pine wood ahead of me were parted as brittle reeds are parted by a man thrusting through them. They were snapped off and driven headlong and a second huge tripod appeared, rushing as it seemed headlong towards me. Mm -hmm. Headlong towards me. So we're standing... At the junction with Old Woking Road and beyond it are some pine trees. Yeah. If you were coming up that Pyford Common road, yeah. you'd see them there. So the tripod would be directly in front of us. There's a tripod coming from the direction of Maybury Hill to his left, and there's a tripod coming immediately ahead of him. To yeah. Straight, so he wrenches the, the horse's head hard round to the right, not surprisingly, yeah. as he would. The dog cart is heeled over upon the horse. The shaft smashed noisily, and I was flung sideways and fell heavy into a shallow pool of water. Yeah. Boom. We think that's right here. I think we're right here. On the corner of Perford Common Road and Old Woking Road, there's a, a, a little brick electricity substation on the corner, if you want to find it. 
And there's even a handy car park, perfect common car park. Yeah. And we think it must be right about here that the dog cart smashes. The reason uh, I was most interested in this, one was to find the third canister location. Yeah. But the second is that this isn't... He actually returns. It's not the only time he comes here, is it? Well, that's the point, isn't it? It's weird, it's weird that he returns it. So at the end of the book, when it's all sort of... Uh, spoiler alert, when the Martians have died. Yeah. He goes back to Woking from London. He never gets to Leatherhead. He yeah. keeps saying he's trying to get to Leatherhead. He goes a very wrong way to get to Leatherhead. He does. It's really weird. But he well, says his wife that he, is. He, he gets off at Byfleet Station and takes the road to Maybury. He doesn't get to he doesn't go to Woking Station because it's it's broke it's trashed. Yeah. So past the place where he met the artilleryman, blah blah blah. Here I moved by curiosity. I turned aside to find among a tangle of red fronds the warped and broken dog cart with the whitened bones of the horse scattered and gnawed. For a time I stood regarding these vestiges. Yeah. But this makes sense that if you were going to buy from Byfleet Station, you would walk come around, you would come down this road yeah, would. and you would just step aside to find it. Yeah. I have to say, they stripped the horse carcass pretty quick, haven't they? I know, who did that? Because uh, by my reckoning, that's only three weeks. Yeah. But we've already mentioned the dogs. Yeah. The dogs have ah, uh, so the they've dogs, stripped the carcass. The dogs have been spared from all this. Right. So all the bodies of the dog walkers on Perfect Common and the horse have yeah. been stripped by the dogs that have been the, let off the, their leashes. The, the, the liberated around. dogs, who I'm beginning to think may be in the league with the Martians in some way. My dog would love all this. Because yeah. he eats all kinds of shit. Yeah, yeah. He would he would have a field day. Because the Martians aren't you know, they're they're exsanguinating the bodies, right? Yes. And they might just be leaving the bodies, once they've taken all the blood out, just leave it for everything to eat. For the dogs. Yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's a symbiotic relationship, the dogs and Martians. Do you think that they've been communicating telepathically for many years before, think, the, before the invasion started? I, th- I think do- that's what a dog bark is. It's a Martian signal. <laughs> They're harbingers. Come and rescue, rescue me from The this. dogs are harbingers. Rescue me from this rubber toy. All those rubber toys might be the signals. around all these different locations um, he wouldn't have been able to do it on foot and what comes clear is that he was basically enjoying the fact that he was learning how to ride a bike tim race a ding dong again a ding dong so another um, he's a lego man again so he was a he was a big tricycle user in the 1880s <laughs> give me a break he used to take his his first wife isabel out on a tricycle and because tricycles were very popular in the 1880s because and they were basically you know quite big chunky things with the pedals on the front wheel but then Bicycles, two-wheel bicycles, became an absolute massive, massive uh, fandom for these things in the in the in the eighteen nineties. They were the, they were the technology of the eighteen nineties. They and said in that commuting thing that the invention of the bicycles and electric streetcars provided an alternative that then also allowed for the spread. That idea that if you wanted to be thirty minutes yeah. from the centre of the city, the yeah, bicycle yeah, yeah. then revolutionised that. Yeah, yeah. It claims in here that the safety bicycle. Yeah. which began supplanting towering high wheelers, 
Well, the safety uh, bicycle was the, was, the, was the bicycle, what they called the bicycle with a, a chain and a rear axle. So uh, up until that time, so the history of bicycles, quick history of the bicycles. Oh, the here we century. go. Quick history of bicycles. The There's basically three phases, right? The first phase is they invent this thing called the Dressine, which is named after a German uh, inventor who invented a thing called the Laufmaschine. This is at the early 19th century, which is basically a thing you sat on, no pedals, and you just you ran on it. You know, you ran along I've the ground. I've seen pictures of those, yeah. They were quite popular, but then they kind of faded away. And then the French went mad for a thing that they called the Velocipede, which is essentially a two-wheel bike, but the front wheel has got pedals on it. So you're steering the thing that you're pedaling, and there's no chain, right? Okay. So, so you basically, you can only go as fast as you can pedal. There's no kind of, you know, ratio between the building. They were quite the thing, and they were developing quite fast in the sort of mid to late 19th century. Right. But then they basically came to a grinding halt in France in 1870 because of the Franco-Prussian War. The Germans again. The Germans come in and said, we don't like your bikes. Too racy. Too racy. You know, you've got to use the Lelf machine. Put your skirts back on, ladies. Um, and then, no trousers. What, so the development of that, velocity, what they call the velocity, the reason you get to a penny farthing is they were trying to get to a really big wheel on the front so that you could go faster because you're already, because of the way you're pedaling. All right. So you end up with a little wheel on the back and a big one on the front. Hugely dangerous. The first chain-driven bike was actually designed in Paris in 1885. So quite... Oh, it's so, very new so, then. So it's, it, very is new. Quite, it is quite new. Is okay. It's Yes, right? that's what it says here. You um, said it could go four miles in half an hour. Yeah. But it didn't really go anywhere in France. But the British picked up and they went nuts for it. Okay, they went absolutely nuts for it. John Kemp Stanley produced the Rover in 1885, steerable front wheel, equally sized wheels, hence safety bike, and a chain drive to the rear wheel. And then along came John Dunlop with his pneumatic tyre, 1888. Ah. So these are all coming along at the same time. So this became absolutely huge. Interestingly, little side note, 1889, the folding bicycle was invented by Isaac R. Johnson, who was an African-American. He basically invented the Brompton in 1889. That's great. Um, and the first electric bike was 18. First electric bike was 1897. That's amazing. So, that's a, so anyway, there was a, just an absolute deluge of these things being built, and the reason they were important, uh, particularly for women, actually, it was a very, it was a big part of women's emancipation that they could make their own way to places safely, you know, without getting on the you know public transport and being leered at. And all this kind of thing. It was a very, it was a massive thing for independence of women. The reason it's important for Wells is he moves to Woking with Amy slash Jane in 1895, and uh, the first thing he does when he buys her, he buys them a bike. He buys them a tandem. So they're cycling around all over Woking and all over the place. And he writes a book that comes out in 1896 called The Wheels of Chance, which is the kind of like a, a three men in a boat style comic novel about somebody cycling essentially across the whole of Sussex and Kent go all the way out to the North Kent coast they were really going for it on the on this bike the and, second uh, uh, book by J. Jerome, J. K. Jerome is called Three Men on the Bummel there is and they're on a bike ride they're in Germany they're on a bike ride in Germany mm. yeah. so he's he's on his rover or he's, he's on his tandem with his yeah, with yeah, his yeah. missus yeah, yeah. And he's going through this landscape we're describing from working. Well, there's a quote. The there's, there's a quote in um, imagining how to blow up everything. There's a quote in the Wheels of Chance where they, you know it's a rather nice quote when they go out to Putney Hill in, in the book. So yep. you know the, the, it does all join up together. So he's essentially looking around as he goes and figuring oh. out A to you know how, how they get from A to B. So, listener, you might want to do this trip on a bike. You may well want to do it on a bike. To be um, authentic, although the further you get into London, the harder that is to do. Oh yeah. So that's the end of part one of our War of the Worlds adventure. In part two, we'll be abandoning Woking and moving as the tripods move down the Thames and towards central London. Down the way, really. Really?
Oh, I knew there was a reason you were here. And it down was to be curiously specific about location. Down the river way until where it meets the Thames. But uh, we'll talk about that in the next podcast. Um, the next podcast will be available a week from now, if you listen to this the day it comes out. However, if you want to get the second episode immediately, you can do that by subscribing to our Patreon page at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Uh, and search for Curiously Specific and there you'll find uh, the second episode of every podcast we do immediately without ads and also you'll get access to all our show notes our lovely maps and links and videos all the research we've done for this show so you'll be able to plan your own adventure using that absolutely getting out there that's what it's all about on a bike preferably on a bike or a tandem with no. Potentially your, 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 <laughs> second, your second wife. Or indeed a tricycle. Or indeed a tricycle. We'll see you in a week's time, or immediately, if you're a Patreon subscriber. We'll be reappearing in a place of Stranger Shepparton, I think. Yes, we'll be taking a cycle path, no doubt. Undoubtedly. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 